Now you might have listened to that passage and you might have gone, what has that got to do with Advent? There's no kings, there's no cribs, there's no angels. Instead we have this story of John the Baptist who is the last in the long line of the Old Testament prophets who has prophesied and waits patiently, waited patiently for the Messiah. And yet out of all that long line of prophets, John's the last of the line and the only one who ever casts eyes on him, as it were, from a physical point of view. Now the Advent season is both about remembering and giving thanks for the birth of Jesus and for being expectant of what is coming, patiently waiting for his promised return. Now if we look at Matthew's Gospel, in the early chapters Matthew has introduced us obviously to Jesus through the nativity story, he's introduced us to the beginning of his ministry, his baptism, uh, his early teaching, his early healing. Um, and by this stage in Matthew's Gospel, he moves on to, uh, in chapters 11 and 12, to look at people and how they responded to Jesus. There's a collection of, of narratives there which are about how people respond to the message that Jesus brings. And I think it's interesting that um, Matthew particularly picks on John the Baptist as the first example he looks at of how people respond to Jesus' message. You know, he picks on the very person who's been there prophesying and testifying to who Jesus is. We read in John's Gospel, in chapter 1, next day John saw Jesus coming towards him. He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is the one I meant when I said, a man comes after me who has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. So Matthew, as it were, picks on this greatest of the Old Testament prophets as his first example of how people respond to Jesus. And I don't have a clicker, actually, I just remembered. Thank you very much. Now, I imagine I don't need to be telling you uh, that the Old Testament is full of prophecies that God would in time provide a re redeemer king to Israel, someone who would come out of a line of David, whose reign would never end. And I'll just give you one little well-known example as we're in Advent of that. In Isaiah 9 and verse 6, unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and with righteousness from that time and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. We know of many such prophecies for the Messiah or the Christ in Greek, made by many of the Old Testament prophets hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus is born. The most recent example we have in our scriptures of these prophecies comes in the last book of the Old Testament in Malachi. And in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way for me, before me, and then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come. The messenger of a covenant whom you desire will also come, says the Lord Almighty. 
I'm sure you'll agree that 400 years is a long time to wait. Many generations came and went by John's day, and yet the hope held out to Israel through the word, the Holy Scriptures, continued to hold Israel together and to bind them in that waiting, waiting as the people of God for that great day. And if you think about it, that wasn't even an easy 400 years. Across that 400 years, Israel suffered much persecution, uh, most notably from the Greeks and the Romans. But there were constant wars and the land being overrun by foreign armies. And yet the Jews continued to take hold of that scriptural promise and wait for this day, although 400 years is a long time to wait. I think if the Israelites had given up on God's word, their unique identity would have been lost. But they clung on and they waited regardless, regardless of what the world threw at them. And I think their willingness to wait defines who they are. And yet I'm sure, quite naturally, they would at times have expressed the words of the psalmist who says in a number of psalms, How long, O Lord? How long? Will you forget us forever? How long will you hide your face from us? And I suppose if you think about it, that's a refrain Advent we can take up as Christians as well, not just the Advent. A people of faith who have been waiting many generations, 2,000 years, not 400 years, for the return of our King. The world laughs at us. The world jeers. But the identity of Christians across the world, across all traditions, is based in part on this central tenet of the Christian faith we hold, namely that Jesus will return. And therefore we are, in that sense, a people who wait. And waiting is the way we are defined. But it is a struggle. I don't know how many patient people we have here this morning. I'm not the world's most patient person. But it is a struggle. As we wait and we wait and we wait, and we do so in faith, at times doubt troubles us, doesn't it? Doubt says, really, will he return? Really, are you, is he the one? And therefore, when we're going to look at this passage of Scripture now in Matthew, I'm going to try and look at it from two perspectives. Firstly, to look at it from how John sees Jesus. And then secondly, how Jesus sees John. And hopefully draw that into an Advent context so we can see that together. So looking first at how John sees Jesus, and John sees Jesus clearly with both faith and doubt. Israel were awaiting a conquering king, someone who would release them from their worldly slavery to the Romans. But instead of a king of mighty, of worldly might and splendor, they were given a carpenter's son. One who did not arrive with a horse and a chariot, brandishing a sword, but instead a man who was gentle and humble in nature, a man who spoke more about serving other people and even of loving those who hated them. Where was the glory in that? For many, that was not the Messiah of their expectations. And because of that, they start to deny him and reject him. 
And even John the Baptist, despite his early affirmation of who Jesus was, seems to be caught up with some of the similar doubts. Even John the Baptist. Remember John and his bold words to the crowd. I baptize you with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals are not worthy to untie. This same John, who testified to the coming Messiah, now finds himself in a dark, dank cell, locked away, left to rot, and I imagine wondering where the Messiah was now. John is so clearly full of the doubt, this nagging doubt, that he eventually goes to the extent of sending some of his disciples to Jesus with that simple question in verse 2. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come, or should we be expecting another? John had clearly received news of what Jesus was doing, and yet it was apparently not all that he'd expected, so he sent his disciples to ask him that question. I think it's the sort of question we ask sometimes when people are coming to faith in Christ. You know, is he the one? Is he the one? It's a very natural question to ask, isn't it? But I think if we're honest, even after many years as Christians, if we reflect on Advent and and this whole dimension of waiting, you know, how long do we have to wait? Is he really the one who will be returning? If we actually take time to reflect on Advent and our Advent hope, and I think it's not unusual for such questions and such doubts to occasionally assail us too. Although they're not necessarily things that we tend to share and discuss particularly openly. One of the things about doubt, which I believe is a healthy dimension of faith as well, to question, but one of the things about it is we think we can't discuss them, we can't discuss our fears, And we tend to shut ourselves away with our doubts. And I think that's a very dangerous place to be. I'd want to suggest to you this morning that faith almost needs doubt if it is to grow deeper and become more real. Faith is tested by doubt. And any form of testing can be a painful process and one that we at times try and just push away, push under the carpet, try to forget. If you think of John, I'm sure it took great courage on John's part to even raise the question with himself, but even more so to share it with his close disciples, and then to dare to send them off to Jesus with the question. You think of who John was, that track record that that he's lived through, John's example. But I think his example is a healthy one, both in his willingness to share his questions with his disciples, with people he trusts, but also by the way he then takes these fears and doubts, not away from Jesus, but towards him. We are encouraged in the scriptures to take all matters to God in prayer, as Liz uh, reminded us. And I always advise people who are struggling with doubt to share their doubt as well with a trusted Christian companion and friend. And then always to take their doubts to Jesus in prayer. 
We don't need to be afraid of our doubts. And sometimes when our doubts are hidden, they tend to fester. We're much better off exploring them in a, tra in a safe environment, as it were, and actually exploring them. Don't, don't just hide them away. Now, we might have expected one of Jesus' more common uh, replies to this question when it came, you know, like, oh, you of little faith. But instead, Jesus, I think, recognised the sincerity and the honesty of John's question and wants to point him to the examples of what is already breaking in, what can be seen and what can be heard. I think Jesus could hear John's cry for help. Men are not very good at crying for help. And there's John, he's lived in the wilderness for years. He has his, you know, honey and, what is it, he ate, you know, exactly, yeah. So he's, he's a pretty hardy individual living out there prophesying about the Messiah. You know, for such a man to ask for help could not be easy. And yet he does it. And I think his example is really important. That great prophet, preacher, this tough man, he recognises he has these doubts. But Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus responds with words of compassion and hope. In verse 4, Jesus replied to him, blind receiving sight, the lame are walking. Those who have leprosy are being cured. The deaf are hearing once more. The dead are being raised. And the good news is being preached amongst the poor. Jesus points John back to the promises of Scripture, promises in which he had for so many years put his trust and from which so many, for so many years he had faithfully preached and told others about. He reminded John of texts in the Old Testament, messianic texts, no doubt. Isaiah 28 and verse 18 and 19. In that day the deaf will hear the words of the scroll and out of the gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. And once more, the humble will rejoice in the Lord. And maybe that text also that Jesus identified himself with personally in Nazareth. In Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, a release from darkness for the prisoner. Jesus gently points John back to the word, saying, look, see here, see there, see here. Things that are now coming to pass in front of your own eyes. Signs of an in-breaking kingdom that are observable and of a reason, therefore, to persevere in hope, regardless of your present circumstances, for a new kingdom is breaking in, though not fully yet present. And in our time as Christians, not as Jews, but as Christians, we might also respond by pointing people to the examples of Jesus, to the miracles. But we must never forget the greatest miracle of all is that Jesus rose from the dead. He has risen. So even though our waiting, as it were, on this side of a cross seems long, 2,000 years, it is based on that sure and certain hope revealed to us, in the, not just in the birth and the life of Jesus, but so much more in his death, resurrection, and ascension. When doubts assail us as Christians, reminding ourselves of what God has already done for us within human history becomes a firm foundation stone for our Advent waiting.
Jesus did not and would never conform to Israel's expectation of a messianic king. But he did try and help John see what had happened and what was continuing to happen and to encourage him to wait with hope. In verse 6, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Jesus is rarely what we expect. Jesus is rarely what people expect. He comes to us often in the unexpected. And we should take care that we do not fall away because of how he presents himself to us. But instead stand firm in the fact that he did come 2,000 years ago. He comes to us, in fact, daily, if we invite him, in the person of the Spirit. And he has promised in the scriptures that he will return once more at the end of this age. As Peter said, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some would understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And then I'm just going to turn to how Jesus sees John in the second part of our reading. Once the disciples of John have departed, taking those words of encouragement back to John, Jesus turns to the crowd and he says, What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are found in king's palaces. Then what did you go to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Three times Jesus asked the crowd, what did you go into the desert to see? Was it a man with just some fashionable new ideas? that come and go like the reed swaying in the wind? Was it a man who was affluent and important in the eyes of the world? Or was it to listen to a prophet, a prophet of God? I think Jesus knows that people gather for all sorts of reasons, and any of those three. But Jesus sets on the last, knowing that John's role is that of prophet of the Most High, in fact, as the greatest of them. In verse 13 of our reading, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So John, Jesus raises John, as it were, onto a highest plinth of the Old Testament prophets, above Isaiah, above Jeremiah, above any of the prophets. Jesus testifies to John's identity as that forerunner, and so alludes to his own identity as the Messiah. He builds John up so high, and that must have then also then staggered his, his audience by what he then said next. In verse 11 he says, I tell you the truth, amongst those born of women there's not risen anyone greater than John, and yet he who is the least in the kingdom is greater than he. Even John the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, is considered least in the kingdom. This great man, this faithful prophet, the least. Why? Well, the foundation of the new covenant coming in Christ 
is just fundamentally changed. It's no longer founded on the law, on good works, on our ancestry, but it is founded only on receiving God's act of love and grace by faith and of turning and being reborn in Christ. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, Jesus saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he's poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. In this new order, even the least of the new is greater than the greatest of the old. Even John the Baptist, that greatest of the Old Testament prophets, still needed to trust personally in Jesus. It's an invitation that lies before each one of us. Entry into this kingdom is not defined by religious adherence, it's not defined by good works, it is simply by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Faith in its messianic king. Faith in Jesus. Faith that declares he is the one worth waiting for, the Messiah. And that in that word we place our trust and our hope. I hope in that sense you can see how a little bit better how I think this story of, of Jesus and John in Matthew's Gospel uh, does have an Advent theme to it, a sense of waiting upon the Messiah, the sense of our personal response to his arrival. John sees Jesus with a view that includes both faith and doubt. You know, Jesus doesn't turn his back on him because he carries doubt. May we take note also of John's example of putting his pride aside, all right, as he brings both his faith and his doubts, to God in Christ. Jesus, we're told, identified fully with our human frailty and yet was without sin. Jesus always seeks to help us in our human frailty, to encourage us to press on with a firm hope. So John's a powerful example, but Jesus sees John, the other way around, for who he is, a man needing salvation, a great man but a man, nonetheless, needing salvation. In the eyes of the world, you know, he's a great, great man, but in God's eyes, he needs Jesus. Even John was waiting for God's saviour. So Advent reminds us, this time of year, when sometimes people just think of a crib, it reminds us that we as Christians look forward with hope. We need patience, we need faith, and we also need honesty in our lives as well. The writer of the Hebrews says, do not throw away your confidence, it will be richly rewarded, but you need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and not delay. But the righteous, he says, will live by faith. That's a quotation then from Hebrew to Habakkuk. 
The Holy Scriptures declare that one day there will be no more Advent. There will be no more getting ready. There will be no longer any more waiting for the King of Glory, for he will have returned. I'm just going to read one prophetic word on this again from Isaiah in this respect, just to remind us of that. Isaiah 35, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey upon it. It will be for those who walk in the way. Wicked fools will not go upon it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk. And the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. It's going to be worth the wait. I tell you, hope is on the way. Amen.